If you have your Bibles, uh, if you want to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, if you're following along on an app, we're going to be looking at the English Standard Version of that text. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Amen. Uh, well, if you've been with us for a while now, you know that uh, we're in a series uh, in the book of Philippians. It's Paul's letter uh, to a church that he planted 10 years ago. Uh, in the city of Philippi, and today we get to talk about uh, the word citizenship, okay, and it's uh, obviously it's a word that is our namesake, uh, it's a word that is very charged, especially in today's divided political landscape, uh, it's a word uh, that often has been used to designate who's in and who should be kept out. Um, it's a word that, especially for those of us uh, like me, uh, whose parents were immigrants to the States, may be connected to our own stories, uh, our own struggles of trying to belong and to be accepted uh, in a foreign country. Uh, to give you a little bit of background about myself, uh, I was born in Korea. Uh, I, uh, my parents immigrated here when I was nine months old. So it was a kind of a strange dynamic because um, I had no recollection whatsoever of my homeland, and yet legally I was a Korean citizen uh, living in America. And, uh, you know, I grew up in, in Cerritos, California, and, uh, you know, uh, I was, you know, I went to American schools, and yet it was interesting. Uh, the first time my parents brought me back to Korea, I had never been there before uh, in my life, and I got off the plane, and strangely enough, it still felt like home. And it was strange because, you know, I, how could this place feel like home when I'd never seen it before? And I realized when I look back on my life, the way that my parents had raised me, they had raised me with Korean values, Korean customs, Korean traditions. Uh, in some ways, we, we were truly living as Koreans on non-Korean soil. Um, if you came to my house uh, for breakfast, uh, you weren't eating cereal. You were eating rice. Uh, you know, you had to take off your shoes before you came into the house. My parents spoke to me in Korean. I went to Korean school. We celebrated Korean holidays. And it was so much so that when my non-Asian friends, my non-Korean friends would come visit me, there would be this moment of disorientation because on one hand they felt like, okay, this is definitely Cerritos, California, but I walk in here and it smells like Korea. It feels like Korea. It tastes like Korea. And I realized that in some sense, we were in our own little way a colony of Korea in America. And Paul is going to play on this and he uses this motif of citizenship throughout the book of Philippians. Uh, we saw it in chapter 1 when Paul says, above all, 
So if you forget everything else I write in this letter, I want you to remember just this one thing. I want you to live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then here near the end of his letter in Philippians chapter 3, we see this again. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And when Paul uses the analogy of citizenship in his letter, he's touching on uh, an idea that would have been extremely familiar to the Philippians. If you remember at the beginning of this series, I talked about how Philippi was a Roman colony. And what does it mean to be a Roman colony? It meant that you were carrying the status of Rome on non-Roman soil. You were carrying the culture. You were embodying the values, the customs, the traditions of Rome and non-Roman soil to the point where someone who visited Philippi, they would experience a certain level of disorientation because on one hand, they would be a thousand miles from Philippi and yet it would smell like Rome. It would feel like Rome. It would taste like Rome. They used Roman currency. They abided by Roman laws. They celebrated Roman uh, holidays, the way of the Roman Empire became the way of the city. And Paul says, I know this is how you think, and I know this is how your lives have, have been, but now I want you to realize that you are no longer a colony of Rome in Philippi. I want you to see yourselves as a colony of heaven in Philippi, as an outpost of heaven in Philippi. And Paul, if you notice in verse uh, 20, when he says, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, even when he uses that word savior, it's a very intentional reference and subversion of the word. We kind of, uh, it's easy for us to kind of uh, brush that aside or kind of gloss over words like that, but Paul was a rhetorical genius. He was so good at using language for his advantage, and when he says, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he's subverting that word savior because in Greco-Roman society, that word savior was always used to refer to the Roman Empire. So you would refer to Nero as a savior. You would refer to Caesar as a savior. And what Paul is saying is, he says, as Christians, we are no longer to see, themselves, uh, see ourselves as citizens of a kingdom where Caesar is king or where Nero is king or where money is king or where power is king. But we are to understand our identity as citizens of a heavenly kingdom where Jesus is king. And Paul is saying, if you understand this, it should change everything. It should change the way we interact with people. It should change the way we understand ourselves. It should reorient our perspective on life altogether. Now, I want to kind of give us a caveat. Um, Philippians 3 is one of the most misinterpreted uh, passages in all of Scripture. Okay, um, I don't know how you, if, if you grew up in church and you've heard this uh, text preached before, but there, are, there is one way that it has often been interpreted, and it's been like this. Our citizenship in, is in heaven. Our primary home is in heaven. And so we are to see ourselves kind of like tourists just passing through earth. And we just have to hold on, sit tight, because one day we're going there. This isn't our home. And this is a very dangerous kind of uh, understanding of this text, and it leads to two kind of extreme theologies. The first is this. On one hand, for some of us, this is the way I grew up. It was a theology that said, okay, because this isn't your home, and because your home is in heaven, and we're just kind of tourists passing through on earth, 
Let's just disengage from the culture altogether. The world is bad. Don't listen to secular music. Don't watch secular TV. Don't hang out with non-Christian people. Let's just hang out in our Christian bubbles. Let's just hang out in our holy huddles because, you know, just give it a couple years and we're going to be back in our primary home. Um, one thing that I never understood about uh, my parents' generation uh, as a Korean is uh, Koreans, they love to travel and they love to go to different uh, destinations all around the world, but they always uh, use these Korean travel agencies uh, where they go and they'll go to like Italy and then they'll eat only Korean food. Okay. I, I never understood that. They somehow find the three Korean restaurants in Italy They'll stay on the Korean tour bus with only Korean people, and then they'll eat only at Korean restaurants, and they come back and they say, that was an amazing trip. Italy is a beautiful place. Um, I never understood that. And yet, this is the theology that comes up, uh, especially when we see ourselves as tourists simply just passing through. We have a tendency, let's just stay in church with church people doing church things and disengage from the culture altogether, because this isn't our home, and we're going to heaven one day. Well, there's the other extreme theology because some people have kind of pushed up against that theology and we, it's kind of like the uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas theology, okay? Where we see ourselves as tourists uh, in a different culture and we say, you know, we're not going to be here that long. For some of us, we're only going to be here 50, 60, 70, 80 years, so let's just live it up while we can, uh, you know, even though we know this isn't really our identity because we're going home anyways, right? And this is the kind of the mindset we take, right? We go somewhere and we say, hey, we only have three days here. Let's live it up. Let's just kind of become like the people here, assimilate completely into the culture, knowing that that's not who we are, knowing that we're going to go back and life is going to go on as normal. And yet Paul would absolutely disagree with both of these extremes and he would absolutely disagree with this interpretation because this isn't the way the Philippians would have heard this. You have to notice that if you were a colony of Rome, uh, you retired in Philippi. So you, your plan was not to uh, tour Philippi and then go back to Rome. That wasn't the mindset of let's be in Philippi for a little bit and then let's go back to Rome. The whole point was you were trying to get Rome into Philippi. And I've said this over and over again throughout the series that the goal of the Christian faith is not for us to get into heaven. The goal of the Christian faith is to get heaven into us. For our identity as citizens of, citizens of heaven to affect our lives here on earth, to reorient our patterns, our behaviors, our beliefs, our way of thinking here on earth. And if we go through this text, even these four simple verses, Paul is going to show us how exactly that happens. That our citizenship in heaven, if you're taking notes, it's three points. It reorients our perspective. It reorients our patterns and it reorients our purpose. Our perspective, our patterns, and our purpose. First, let's start with our perspective. In verse 17, uh, right off the bat, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The implication there is that our natural tendency is for us to keep our eyes on those who are following the way of our culture. I mean, he knows 
that the people he's talking to, he, he knows, I know that there's going to be a temptation for you to keep your eyes and for you to imitate people who have, are living according to the Roman Empire, but keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Around this time every year, at the end of the year, um, you'll see a list. Blogs start putting out a list. Magazines start putting out a list. Um, who to follow in 2020. Uh, artists you should keep your eyes on in 2020. Uh, entrepreneurs to follow in 2020. And essentially what they're saying is, these are the people who've made it. These are the people who are living the way that you should live. These are the people who define what a good life looks like, so follow them. I mean, this is the way of the culture. And if you want to know what our culture believes, all you need to do is pick up one of those magazines and you see who makes that list every year and you will know what it means to have the perspective of our culture. And here's the thing about culture. The longer you live in a culture, the more and more it slowly but surely transforms you into what it is. Um, I remember when my wife and I first moved uh, to California from Philadelphia, from the East Coast. And I remember uh, our first winter here. And it was hilarious because in L.A., uh, people still announce when winter comes. I don't understand why. Uh, they say winter is here, but it looks exactly like summer. And it looks exactly like fall. It looks exactly like spring. Uh, we, we still announce it in the, on the East Coast. First snowfall, take a picture of that, winter is here. In California, I don't know why we announce it, but we still do. Uh, Carol and I made fun of everyone who did that. Well, six years later, it, uh, uh, the temperature dips below 80 degrees, and my wife pulls out all the sweaters and pea coats and beanies and winter jackets. And at some point, uh, we, something that was so foreign to us, something that seemed so strange to us, has become a part of our life has become a part of our DNA. We have truly assimilated to the way of Los Angeles. And that's kind of like a light example of it, but all of us know that give it enough time and we are all extremely adaptive creatures. That we go somewhere and live there long enough and we will become like that culture. We will begin to adopt the narratives, the stories of that culture as our own. It is our natural incarnation because we are adaptive and that culture and that story and that narrative will begin to shape the way we view our lives it will be the lens through which we see everything what is that culture in los angeles what is that culture in america many of you don't know this but you those of you who've grown up in america in the states you don't realize that we have all been shaped by the story of america entrepreneurship you know, many of you wonder, where did I get this can-do spirit, pull it up, you know, uh, pull myself up by the bootstraps? That is a very American way of thinking. Radical individualism, this like fear of dependence and community, that is a very American way of thinking. And you know this because go to any country uh, outside of America and they have a very different view of community. They have a different, very different view of dependence. But when this is the water that you're swimming in, this is all you know. Capitalism, consumerism, workaholism. These are the narratives, these are the stories that shape us, that reorient our perspective. And we begin to see everything 
through that lens. So much so that the people we look up to, our heroes, the people we look and we say, those are the people I want to emulate, I want to be like in the next 20 years. Oftentimes, they are the people who have achieved that story, who have achieved the goal of that narrative. I want you to think about who are the heroes in your life. Who are the people you would say, man, I would love in 10, 20 years to be where that person is. And I guarantee you, if you analyze that list, in many ways, you will see how much you have assimilated to the way of the culture. Maybe that person, man, they're happily married with kids. They bought a home. Um, you know, they, they have a stable job. Uh, they're, uh, they're leading in their field or their industry. And all of a sudden, you realize that the things that we want, our perspective has been so shaped by the story that we're swimming in. And Paul understands this because Paul says, anybody who looks at my life who has adopted the Roman way of thinking would not want my life. Every person that I've told you to imitate throughout the book of Philippians, nobody, they would never make a list on any blog. Timothy, Epaphroditus, Paul. Paul's like, I'm sitting here in prison, but I'm telling you, keep your eyes on people like me. Keep your eyes on people like me. When I think about Jesus, if Jesus were walking around in our church, in our city in 2019, would anybody want to, would anybody want to follow him? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't. He was a blue-collar worker. He was a carpenter. Uh, he was in his early 30s, still didn't get married. No kids, no house, not even apartment. He was a nomad. He had uh, 12 Instagram followers, right? Which later became 11 because one unfollowed him later on, right? I mean, he would not be someone in our culture we would say, that is the person I want to follow. Universities bring in guest speakers, of, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, CEOs who've made it, and they tell you, imitate me and you'll get what I have. And we get so excited about that because the lens in which we view the world, the lens in which we view people is the lens of Los Angeles. And yet Paul says if we're to look through a different lens, the lens of heaven, we would have a different perspective. We would realize that the way of Jesus is the better life. That it is better to give than to receive. That it is better to sacrifice than to hoard and to consume, that it is better to be lowly and meek than it is to be strong and proud. And as citizens of heaven, we belong to a different story, a different narrative, one that tells us uh, that there was a beginning that started with creation and that there's an end. And there's a specific way we are to get to that end. When you adopt the life of heaven here and now, it reorients our perspective so that we begin to see everything differently. You know, if you live in L.A. long enough, you will begin to see people as temporary and things as eternal. And we never, we don't really believe that, we, you know, we don't, it's hard for us to say that we actually believe that. But I guarantee you, if you're looking through the lens of Los Angeles, this is what we believe and this is how we live our lives. That people are temporary and things are eternal. And yet when we put on the lens of heaven, we see that people are eternal, things are temporary. 
we take on the eyes of heaven to preserve that which is eternal and hold loosely the things that are temporary. Number two, understanding our identity as citizens of heaven also reorients our patterns. It's one thing for us to have a certain perspective. It's another thing to pattern our lives after that perspective. Notice what Paul says. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul is, saying, Paul is not saying they are enemies of the cross of Christ. He's saying they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They have ordered their lives in such a way that they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They have patterned their lives. They have patterned their behavior. Uh, one of the most discouraging things for me, uh, and I wish Apple didn't do this, but uh, every week I get that notification that tells me how long I've been on my phone and how much time I've spent on my, on how much screen time I've spent this week. It's very humbling because I realize that that number is always far higher than how much time I've spent praying how much I've spent time with people and in the word. And in some ways we wonder, why are we so anxious? Why are we so stressed out all the time? Why are we so angry? And then yet we look at the way that we've patterned our lives and we spend no time with people. We spend no time with the Lord. We, we don't spend any, uh, we don't have any intimate relationship with God. And yet we wonder why we feel this unrest. We wonder why our relationships are breaking down. We wonder why we feel the way that we do. And when Paul says, uh, for, me, uh, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, he's crying while writing this letter. He's saying, this makes me so sad because these people are walking in such a way that's ruining them. He says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their mindset on earthly things. You know that we live in a fallen culture that's inhabited by a different empire. And this empire will do everything that it can to promote, preserve, protect its interests in every way possible. And I guarantee you that it will, not only does it give you a specific perspective, but it will tell you how to live in that perspective. It will give you the patterns of behaviors you need to live by in order to succeed in that way of life. Um, it's one thing for you to look at a picture and say, I want a better body. I want to lose weight. I want to get fit. That's a great perspective. But if you do not pattern your life in such a way to actually get that body, having that perspective is worthless. A lot of people who love fad diets, who are always, you know, those people always on a diet, you know, they have a different diet, all the different names for it, because they're, they're always like, nah, that one doesn't work for me. That one doesn't work for me. That one doesn't work for me. And then you ask, what did you really cut out in your lifestyle? Nothing. When's the last time you went to the gym? I don't work out. I need a diet where I can pretty much maintain the exact patterns of my lifestyle and still somehow look really good. And this is the way of LA, where we basically, take, we basically say, we, well, we come to church, we love Jesus, but the way that we pattern our life is not to the way of Jesus or the way of heaven, but to the way of LA. Christianity isn't simply knowing the right things or knowing the right doctrine, it's a way of life. It's a way of life.
Um, Paul in a verse, when Paul says in verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and the glory and their shame with their mindset on earthly things, Paul's actually contrasting himself with the people he's referencing in verse 19 when he says in verse 15, if you remember from last week, he says, I press on toward the a goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This thing that I'm chasing after is Jesus. And I'm willing to do anything to know him. I'm willing to do anything to pattern my life, to experience his radical love for me, to live in his grace no matter what the cost. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This is such an amazing imagery and Paul has these like unintentionally savage moments uh, throughout scripture. Um, many of us, though we would never, though we, we might never admit it, we actually believe that a boxer Boxing the air is the picture of true freedom. That you can just punch anything you want in any direction you want, and you can punch aimlessly, and we would say, wow, that is true freedom. And yet, if Paul tells us anything here, it's this, that we live in a world where we define being free as doing what we want. But Paul says true freedom is not doing what you want. Paul says true freedom is refusing that which you don't need. Let me say that again. Paul says that true freedom is not just doing everything you want, but it's refusing that which you don't need. We live in a world where we define being free as doing what we want. Uh, you know, L.A. is all about be your unique self, you do you. Uh, if you, if you feel it, do it. Uh, you know, if you're hungry, eat. If you see power, take it. If you want to have sex, you should have it. And this is the way of the culture. That if you feel it, and if it's a desire and you want it, you should take it. And that's what true freedom looks like. We're all about autonomy. We're a lot about self-actualization. And yet Paul says, you know where that lands us? I don't see that as freedom. I see that as slavery. Because you do everything you want, and you will be enslaved. You will be enslaved by your jobs. You will be enslaved by sex. You will be enslaved. You will be enslaved by the things that you thought made you free. Uh, if you're the type of person, and this is no judgment on you if you love cupcakes, Okay? No judgment. If you're the type of person who looks at a table and you, you know, you got five cupcakes there and you have to have it and you eat it all. After you eat it, you know, there's always the person, because we live in LA, there's always someone in your group that's on a diet who can't eat it. And you're just like, are you sure you don't want one? It's so good. And he said, no, 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 I'm good. You're missing out. You're missing out, bro. You eat the five cupcakes. And we often say uh, we would define that picture as true freedom. Well, the next morning, uh, who's really truly free versus who is enslaved? 
Was it the person who actually was able to, felt they had the power to do everything they wanted? Or was it the person who said, maybe I don't need to eat five cupcakes? It's probably the latter. And Paul says, the gospel changes everything. Everything that you once thought was freedom, I call slavery. And the way that you truly become free is that you become a slave to Christ. So not only does our citizenship in heaven reorient our perspective, our patterns, it also finally reorients our purpose. Because Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How would you fill in that blank? From it we await blank. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for a promotion? Are you waiting for another career opportunity? Are you waiting to get married? Are you waiting to have kids? Are you waiting for a bigger house, for a big break? And these aren't bad things. These are great things. I mean, we would love everyone to have the things that you're waiting for. But Paul says when they are the ultimate things, their end is destruction. And when they become the ultimate things, we know that we have allowed the lens of L.A. to become our lens. A story that says, you are what you consume. You are what other people say you are. You are your career. And oftentimes we buy into the belief that God exists to fulfill that story. I want you to think about it like this. I want you to imagine you go to work or you go to your schools and I want you to imagine uh, asking your, your non-Christian coworkers this same question. Hey, what are you waiting for right now? Like, what would you love to happen right now? And I guarantee you, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us, their answers would be our answers. We want the same thing and the only difference is that we would say we believe in God and we go to church. But if we were to really search our hearts, my guess would be to say, many of us, though we would be scared to admit it, would say, at the end of the day, those are the same things we want, and we just want God to help us do it. We just want God to help us achieve it. That God exists to help us live out the L.A. dream, to live out the L.A. story. But you see, the reason Jesus was so confusing to his contemporaries was that he was simultaneously so engaged in the culture he lived in, yet he always walked to the beat of a different drum. He was all-powerful, but he never exploited it. He never wavered in his beliefs, yet he welcomed everyone to sit at his table. It was baffling, but because, Paul says, his mind wasn't set on earthly things. And in Hebrews 12, it says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What that is saying is that Jesus had a different end in mind. He had a different purpose in mind. He had a different prize that he was chasing. He was not living by the rules of the kingdom. And I guarantee you, the reason why this is so hard, because if you begin to pattern your life after the life of heaven it will be of detriment to you. Do you know how difficult it is for someone to Sabbath in a culture that glorifies workaholism? Do you know how difficult it is for a pastor to Sabbath 
in a culture that glorifies workaholism. I guarantee you, if one day a week I said to you guys, I'm really going to try, you know, as a pastor, I really want to live into uh, Jesus' definition of a good life, so I'm not going to answer emails. I'm not going to pick up your phone calls. I'm not going to meet with anyone. I'm not going to see you at all. And I'm just going to have my own personal time. I guarantee you next week I'd have people saying, he's a bad pastor. He is not shepherding his flock. Why? Because we have allowed that same lens of workaholism, the stories that define L.A. to define us. I mean, you are definitely considered lazy if you are not answering your emails around the clock. You are definitely considered, uh, you, you would be the last to be considered for, for a pr- promotion if you said, hey, every day I'm going to really not answer emails and do work and I'm just going to spend time with my family. Paul says, I patterned my life after the way of heaven, and this is where I ended up. I'm sitting here in a prison cell. So, I mean, that's the reality of it. We will often lose things in this life. But Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What does it look like for us to reorder our stories, our lives around the story of heaven? What does it look like for you to reorder your life around your identity as citizens where Jesus is king? Around the reality that you're deeply loved, that you're forgiven, that you're eternally secure, that you don't need to do anything, that you don't need to keep running after this thing, that this ideal that doesn't exist. You know, the story of heaven is the only story in which the thing you are waiting for, the thing you are chasing is already yours. That is the beauty of the gospel. It is the only story in which the thing that you are chasing is already yours. And every Sunday when we hear the gospel preached, that should change us. That should completely, that should remind us, man, everything is different now. I don't have to be this anxious. I don't have to worry so much about getting that job or that promotion. I don't have to worry so much Why? Because my destiny is secure. Um, When I actually uh, went through the process of getting my American citizenship, it happened when I was 23 years old. Um, It was a great moment for me, okay? Because many of you, I've shared this in a sermon before, um, you know, uh, my parents spelled my name wrong uh, when they first brought me to the States. So until the age of 23, my legal name was Chunky Min. And um, it was very embarrassing growing up, um, but the thing I was looking forward to the most when I got my American citizenship was finally becoming Jason Min, okay? Um, and so, I mean, that was the only part of the process that was really exciting. Everything else, I was kind of like, ah, you know, you have to, they basically make you come to the LA Convention Center. Uh, they give you an American flag. Uh, they make you watch this video where someone's singing, I'm proud to be an American. And then at the same time, everyone waves their flag together. Um, you know, I was just like, let, let me just get my name changed, and I'm good. Let me get out of here, okay? Um, and I remember sitting there, and, you know, if you've grown up in America, and, you know, uh, you don't really, I mean, that's just literally a, a rote ritual. I mean, it is, I just wanted to get my paperwork and get out of there. But I realized when I was sitting there, 
when I look to my left and my right, there, are, there were people sitting there for whom this moment was so emotional for them. I remember there was a gentleman sitting next to me and the, he was wearing, he actually came wearing a suit and he brought his entire family with him who was sitting in the stands and they were like taking video of him like it was his wedding day or his graduation. And he was sitting next to me and I, I heard, overheard his conversation talking to another gentleman sitting next to him and he said, you don't know how long I've been waiting for this day. Getting this American citizenship is going to change everything for me. I will be able to work in places that I could never sniff before. My kids will have opportunities that were never afforded to me. Everything is different today. And I saw that guy, I saw that gentleman after the ceremony. I mean, he's embracing his family, his family is crying. They're taking photos together. It was a beautiful moment. And I realized that for him, he recognized that this newfound identity changed everything. It changed everything. It reoriented the way he viewed his life, the way he, he, he woke up every day, the way, the way he went to work, the confidence in which he carried himself. It changed everything. And I think for those of us who've, been coming out to church for a long time, who've been Christians for a while, we can take for granted the citizenship that we have in Jesus Christ, our citizenship in heaven, our identity as sons and daughters of the creator of the universe. It's very easy for us to take that for granted. But each Sunday as we hear the word preached, as we sit next to our fellow community members, as we sing these songs of worship, it should be a moment where we say, this identity changed everything for me. That my life is different. I don't have to find myself in the same rat race that everyone else does. And it should encourage us to bring others on that journey with us. For us to go into the city and say, I don't live by these rules. And I'm okay not always getting the promotion. I'm okay if the big break never comes. Because I'm not defined by this kingdom. I'm defined by a kingdom where Jesus is king. Let's pray. God, um, I know that um, for many of us, uh, we live in a city that is the epicenter of culture. Um, many people say that so goes LA, so goes the world. Because we are the movers and shakers in entertainment. Uh, you know, we, oftentimes it's Hollywood that sets uh, certain trends and certain patterns of thinking. And when this is the water we're swimming in every day, when this is the air that we're breathing, it's so difficult for us to remember that we are not citizens of this kingdom. That we are not subject to, to, to the belief systems. We are not subject to the narratives, to the story of L.A. That these things don't define our lives. And I think so many of us find ourselves so distressed, so anxious uh, many of us find ourselves depressed because the story of L.A. isn't panning out for us. 
that, it's, that we feel so exhausted trying to achieve the thing that L.A. promises us. But God, I pray that in the same way that Jesus fully engaged his culture but had his eyes squarely fixed on heaven, I pray that every person in here, for the joy set before us, would have our eyes fixed on you. That we would adopt the beliefs, that we would adopt the way of life, uh, way of Jesus in such a way that someone who comes uh, into our church, that someone who encounters us in the workplace or in our classrooms or in our homes, that they would be disoriented. Because on one hand, they would say, you are so L.A., and yet you smell like heaven. You feel like heaven. You taste like heaven. And I pray that that would be the call of our church. And I believe, Father, that if every person in here could live into that identity to embody the sacrificial love of Jesus in a world that puts self-gratification at the top of its goals, I believe this city would be transformed. So God, help us to root ourselves in the city in such a way that people who encounter us would know you, would know that there is a better way, that there is a way that exists that will lead to the security and the deep satisfaction all of us crave. So God, thank you for this word today. We love you. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.